<sighs> Sleepy. That's what happens when you stop recording in the middle to go to trivia with beer. Get tired. Yeah. True. Yeah. True. But we came in second place. What? Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter two of Ship of Magic. Live ships. Finally. <laughs> I guess it is only chapter two. Yeah, we finally get to the live ships. <laughs> well, the beginning of this chapter is Brashen's point of view, and he is having a nightmare about serpents. Specifically one that is swallowing him whole, and he wakes up, knows it is a nightmare, and thinks back on an event in his childhood which kind of sparked this nightmare, and does state that it is a reoccurring nightmare. Right. This is really interesting because this is a look at a survivor of a serpent attack. Um, I don't know if we knowingly come in contact with any others that have almost been taken by a serpent right and i i kind of hesitate to say attack fair but the event is the serpent using its glamour to try to lure brash and to jump off the side of the ship so yes he resists that right i guess he technically he has the nightmare that the beast succeeds but he is never actually in a position where the serpent could have actually eaten him as far as we know right but it would be really traumatic to see an actual serpent because apparently at this time they were very rare it wasn't a common sighting and most land people still believed them to be fake at the time and the way that Brashen tells it makes it sound as though that is not the case anymore. Yeah, definitely. And I'm wondering if that's because of the recent movement that was at the very beginning of this book in the prologue. Definitely that, plus the slavers are more populous now and, and sailing in the waters, so the serpents have easy food. True. So combined together, there's probably more sightings. But Brashen wakes up from this nightmare, and he is in the hold of the Vivacia, which is the ship of the Vestrits. We learned last chapter that Wintrow is one of the grandchildren of Efren Vestrit, a traitor, and this is his ship. However, he is sick. He is not the captain right now. Kyle Haven, Wintrow's father, is the captain. And Brashen is just a sailor, even though he was looking to move up in Efren Vestrit's ranks as a competent man and trusted. A new captain is taking over, so Brashen's kind of feeling out of it. He's got a major decision coming up, and he kind of equates this serpent nightmare with major decisions in his life. Right. And part of that decision is whether or not he's staying, right? So... It's hard because while Kyle Haven hates Brashen and 
doesn't seem to respect him or his knowledge. Brashen also feels indebted to Efron Vestrit, who yes. is the owner of the ship and potentially going to be the captain again. There's still a lot of talk in this chapter about Efren Vestrid getting over his illness. We know that he does die, but a lot of people are hopeful, at least that are on his side. Right. And it's unclear if it's because his illness didn't seem that serious, quote unquote. I mean, it's serious enough to keep him off of the ship, but maybe it didn't seem serious enough to need more than just one voyage avoided. And here we have um, a lot of people like, oh, yeah, he's hopefully going to get over it. But also he doesn't. And so that also makes me wonder if it's more wishful thinking because people really don't like being under Kyle. Yeah, specifically Brashen, I feel like is a little bit more pragmatic about the situation. And he still thinks that this might be his last trip on the Vivacia because he kind of sees it heading towards Captain Haven. But as we find out with Althea later on, she is much more optimistic about her grandfather com- or her father coming back. Right. But we're with Brashen right now. Yes. And he talks a little bit about how when Kyle took over the ship this time, nobody thought ill of him of having to step down as first mate, um, even though he had worked his way up to that title because Kyle came in and said he wanted some one of his men on board that he knew. And everybody agrees that that's a respectable reason and that it's OK that he didn't mm-hmm. like he stayed on board and that he didn't have like he stepped down to second mate. That's totally fine. Um, however, it's a little less fine that as soon as they were out to see Kyle immediately replaced him again and said it was because he still wanted his men in charge. Mm -hmm. So not really that great and not great on Kyle's part, but he kind of Brashen kind of blames himself because he stayed and he could have taken another job as first mate on a different ship. Mm -hmm. But he likes the vivacia. He likes the crew and everything like that. But Captain Haven finds fault in everything that he does. So Brashen is kind of coming to the decision, well, I'll disembark and find a different ship to sail on after this voyage. But he does dive into his history a little bit because he's meandering through and and he explains why he is thankful to Efren Vestrit. And a lot of that's because, as we find out through more of the text and everything like that, but we know Brashen is the first son of the Trell trader family. He should be the heir. He should have his own live ship ready to go. But he was a big gambler. He was a big money waster and a big drug user, basically a partier. And he left and ran away and went on his first ship when he was 14. So he was all of that and lost his family's approval when he was 14 years old. Right. That is a little bit crazy to think about because you're hearing like gambling, drinking, drug addiction. And like that feels more like an older teen to young 20 year old, not a 14 year old who is so in debt and so lost so many chances that at 14 he's being kicked out. That's a little wild. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at least to my mind, I can't quite wrap my hand my head around it. They grow up fast in the the <laughs> in Bingtown. I guess so. 
Um, but it is something that he had to overcome because that kind of reputation just followed him around and nobody really wanted to take him on their ship because of it. He had to get work somewhere. So he was going to go to a ship and he ended up on a Chalcedian ship as his first one. Mm -hmm. He said it wasn't a great ship. It was a sow in the water. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where he saw his first serpent. And he kind of recounts that experience. He was in his bed and he was seasick and sore, both from unaccustomed work and from a well-earned drubbing from the mate the night before. Sore in spirit, too, for in the dark that slimy Farsi had come to crouch by him as he, as he slept in the forepeak, offering him words of sympathy for his bruises, and then a sudden hand groping under his blanket. He'd rebuffed Farsi, but not without humiliation. The tubby sailor had a lot of muscle underneath his lard, and his hands had been all over brash, and even as the boy had punched and pummeled and writhed away from him. None of the other sleeping hands sleeping in the forepeak had so much as stirred in their blankets, let alone offered to aid him. He was not popular with the other sailors, for his body was too unscarred and his language too elevated for their tastes. Schoolboy, they called him, not guessing how that stung. They knew they couldn't trust him to know his business, let alone do it, and a man like that aboard a ship is a man who gets other men killed. So he flees and goes topside, and is by himself on the top side of the ship and sees a serpent in the water. Right. I think it's really important to say that what happens to Brashen is not okay, obviously. Right. And it's really horrible to think about how in this ship, it seems as though it might translate to others, but there's a sort of hierarchy and the fact that he is on the bottom of the ladder means that nobody's willing to help. It's not really clear what position Farsi has and if he is... Let alone well-liked, you know? Right, yeah. Low on the totem pole plus not well-liked. Right. But it isn't clear what role Farsi has and if he does, if he's like first mate or if he has some level of power or if he's also one of the lower ones and it didn't matter people just didn't want to help but either way it's really sad that ration would have to go through that alone and that nobody would stick up for him or say anything it's just really hard to read about this system of like people you to these people you have to like earn respect and that unfortunately on this ship includes the respect enough to like help you brush off a child predator so like (laughs) not great i don't know if that's like the case on every ship obviously and it doesn't seem that way but yeah it's really unfortunate that this is the first ship that he happened to go on and that he seems to kind of almost feel like well i kind of deserved it because i wasn't a very reliable person on board Mm -hmm. so he's sitting on deck looking over the black water and another option occurs to him rather than, you know, staying there or running away, going back home. It had never presented itself to him before. Now it beckoned to him, simple and logical. Slip into the water. A few minutes of discomfort and then it would be all over. He'd never have to answer to anyone again or feel a snap of a a rope against his ribs. He'd never have to feel ashamed or frustrated or stupid again. 
Best of all, the decision would only take an instant and then it would be done. There'd be no agonizing over it, not even a prayer of undoing it. One moment of decisiveness would be all he'd have to find. So he stands up, leans over the railing, searching within himself for that one moment of strength to seize control over his own fate. But then he sees the serpent. Its great sinuous body concealed in the smooth curve of water that was the wake of the ship. The wall of its body perfectly mimicked the arch of the moving water, but for the betraying moonlight, showing him a momentary flank of glistening scales, Brashen would never have known the creature was there. His breath froze in his chest, catching hard and hurting him. He wanted to shout out what he'd seen, bring the second watch running back to confirm it. Back then, sightings of serpents were rare, and many a landsman still claimed they were no more than sea tails. But he also knew what the sailors said about big serpents. He explains that the sailors think it's an omen of extremely bad luck and that the person who sees it sees their own death. So he knows if he did tell somebody during the voyage, eventually he would die either by the mates or the crewmen not being careful or helping him in certain tasks just because... That was pretty much the only way to get rid of that superstition is to get rid of the person. And that is even more scary. And he realizes that even though he is just about to jump off deck, like Mm -hmm. he wants to live and he doesn't actually want to die, whether that's by the first mate's hand or by the serpent. And in that realization, he finds that the only reason he had really thought about jumping in the water was because of the serpent. Yes. Yeah, uh, in this kind of reaffirming of what he wants to do, he says he'd stop his gambling, he'd stop his drinking, he'd give up Sindin, which is the drug that we were talking about. Similar to, like, it seems similar to, like, snooze or a nicotine buzz, but much more heady and strong. It also physically burns the lip. Yeah, like chew. Yeah, people use it like chew tobacco and put it in their lip. And it will, if you leave it in one spot for too long, it like actually burns you. Yeah. So that's like a little wild. Yeah, interesting. The serpent had known its defeat. Somehow it had sensed he would not fall prey to its guile. And with a shudder as jolting as Farsi's hand on his crotch, he knew that the impulse had not been his own, but the serpent's suggestion. The serpent slides away, but not before casting up an eye at Brashen. This is a really interesting thing because this is kind of a reaffirmation that serpents and others are in some way related, at least the magic that they used, because it seems the second that Brashin was aware of the the magic being used on him, he was not as affected. Yeah. Um, just like how Kennet in our last chapter as soon as he was aware, knew that he didn't actually want to stay. <laughs> he wanted to go to a ship. And also something I completely missed on my first read through, like the relation between the two. Yeah. Because of the similarities in the magic. Right. It's definitely really interesting to think about. And I also wonder because Brashen specifically says that seeing big serpents at this time is very rare. And so I'm wondering if that means that mostly the serpents are pretty small, although I guess small is relative in this world. Like is yeah. small, like baby whale, you know, like, <laughs> well, I'm, 
I'm wondering, I don't think they mean like baby serpents, like dragon serpents. I think they mean sea snakes. And that's where they think these big serpents come from because they have no idea what the life cycle is. You know, it's not uncommon to see, you know, other serpents in the water, but to see these gigantic ones. Or like eels or barracudas. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting, though, and it made me have a, a small thought of like, wait, how fast are these serpents growing that they're <laughs> that there's like a definite difference between a small and a big? <laughs> but it seems though as though mostly now everyone sees big serpents just based off that wording. Right. Yeah. Or at least they're more common. The, the tails of them are more common now. Right. And thus ends Brashen's part, and we jump to Althea. Right. Before we move on, I do want to talk about how um, something that we skipped over a little bit is that Brashen is a little bit hurt by Efron Vestrit because he had assumed that when Vestrit got sick, he was going to leave Brashen in charge. Yeah. This is something that repeats itself with the next character, but I wanted to bring it up specifically because Brashen like has this whole thing about how like he was sure he was first mate. He was sure he was going to get control over it. He would be captain next. And then he figured, well, it is family that it was given over to. So he can't really fault Efren for that. Yeah. He seems kind of a guy who in the writing, at least instantly buries all of those emotions. Right. And kind of just does that as a protection mechanism because, yeah, he is hurt by it. He has had this relationship with Efren. Efren kind of dragged him out and got him from, as we learn later in, in Althea's perspective, from like a jailer's debt. And he would have been a slave if not for Efren, basically. So they have a relationship and Efren does uh, think that Brashen does great work. And he has a lot of promise. But then Brashen immediately is like, well, it's family, though. It's fine. I'll move on. Yeah, I definitely think Brashen is a character who is one to kind of put aside what he's actually feeling and try to write off that as like, oh, I don't really deserve to feel that way. Or like what I'm feeling is selfish and I can't feel that way. And I feel really bad for him because like he made mistakes in his past, but he was also a literal child and he is clearly trying to grow and like fighting off addiction is really hard. And especially in a world where you don't have therapists to help you through that, like he's doing really well for someone who doesn't have professional help to get him out of Mm -hmm. what he is going through. And I think he's really hard on himself for someone who is really holding off on his addictions. I mean, he does pretty good. Mm -hmm. As of uh, right now, he is 24 years old. It has been 10 years since that time. Yes. So we end with Brashen and we go into Althea's point of view. And she has just finished up some work, retying some of the, the barrels that they had of wine on ship. Uh, restoring them, repacking them. And she is preparing something in her head, a plan of action to confront Captain Haven, Kyle, with whatever, with something, as the readers don't know yet. 
Right. But she's going to, you know, freshen up, take a nap, get a change of clothes, that sort of thing, and then go and confront him. Yeah. She also doesn't necessarily start off on the greatest foot (laughs) as it starts with talking about how she misses freshwater baths and how at least she'll get to wipe down in her stateroom. And I think for a first read, Althea kind of comes across as a little bit. um, She's very privileged. Yeah. (laughs) And doesn't know it. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. I think as as Brashen is like the third mate or whatever the hierarchy is and he has like the small bunk with other people there. Yeah, and she's like can't wait to go back to my stateroom. Maybe I'll take a nap. Who knows? And it, I don't know. It just is a very stark difference between the two. And I forgot where Althea starts as a character <laughs> in my remembrance of this story. So it was a a very jarring shift. Yeah. In this part, she definitely comes across very juvenile. All Honestly, all of the Vestrits and Havens are extremely ignorant of any other circumstances besides their privileged own. Right. They are quite annoying in <laughs> their different ways. Yeah. And there are redeeming characteristics from all of them. But it is very apparent that they are super annoying people. (laughs) (laughs) They definitely are related. (laughs) Yes. So she, before she can go back to her stateroom and and clean up and take a nap, she is confronted by the ship's uh, cabin boy and is... Deckhand. Deckhand, excuse me. I think. No, it was the ship's boy. The ship's boy, okay. The ship's boy, mild, confronts her has her go to the uh, captain because captain has called for her. She kind of straightens her back and says, very well, Uh, no wash, no clean clothes and no nap before the confrontation. Very well. She took a moment to smooth her hair back from her face and to tuck her blouse back into her trousers. They were her best working clothes before this, but she did her task and now she is dirty and smudged and everything. And she... Knew her face was dirty, too. Well, she hoped Kyle would enjoy his advantage. She stooped down as if to refasten her shoe, but instead placed her hand flat on the wood of the deck. So this is another little quirk of hers. She, like, feels as though just having a dirty face is, is puts her at a disadvantage. Yeah. It, it, I don't know. <laughs> to me, it feels like... I don't want to say the word fan fiction because we're reading, you know, a book right now, but it feels <laughs> like a fan's thoughts of what court is like. Right. Like she is, she like, oh, I'm such an aristocrat and a noble and I need to have the upper hand in all these conversations, but she has no idea what she's doing kind of thing. Right. Okay. I don't sure. know. That's what, that's to me, that's how it reads. I don't know. I guess it just read childish to me, but I like that that's, better. I mean, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because she's trying to do or think of the same things that we saw were expertly done by Chade or Regal or any of those manipulators <laughs> or Kennedy even in the last chapter. But she's just like, oh, I have dirt on my face. That's an advantage for Kyle. Yeah, I think it definitely shows her naivety, but also... Like, she could just wipe her face off and then she wouldn't have dirt (laughs) on her face. It's like whenever you tell a kid the basics of rules and then they, like, get weird thoughts on it because they don't, like, 
actually have to do the rules. Right. And then they're like, oh, so this is how that works. Like, I don't like, <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't actually work that way. I don't know how to better explain it, but it just feels very much like someone who was told once as a child, like, Hey, you need to be clean in front of people to be respectable. And she's like taking that to the extreme of like, Oh, obviously this is one for him because I'm not clean. I don't have time to get changed or whatever. I, I feel like in all honesty, it was, it would even be an advantage to her. Right. To look like she's doing work because her whole thing is Kyle sees me as this woman who is ineffectual because he has chastity and blood and I can't do anything right and I'm not an actual sailor. But then you want to get like cleaned up and like traitor. Yeah. I don't know. It's it is. Anyways. (laughs) Yeah. Just the wrong mindset going into it. But she is putting a hand down on the deck and whispering to the ship. This is a live ship. This is Vivacia, not awakened. And she's just asking it to give her strength. Also, I want to point out that she makes note that Mild seems half apologetic and half eager to deliver the news. And half relishing being the bearer of such tidings. And I think that that's really interesting because this gets a little bit in, uh, it's our first peek into the dynamic of her and the crew. Yeah. And I think Althea has a different version in her mind of how the crew thinks of her versus how they actually do. Mm -hmm. So it is really interesting. This very first peak, the very first crew member she's interacting with, they're like relishing getting to tell her that she has to go to the captain's office. But he is a like a boy too, right? Like he's younger. Which what does that mean? Because so. like Althea's eighteen right now. I did the math, so <laughs> so like he's maybe four years younger than her. Yeah, I'm know. guessing like fourteen, fifteen, something like that. So she knocks on the captain's door, waits for the call to enter, and stands in there while Kyle is looking at some of the charts, the family trader family charts, and she is kind of just blasted by nostalgia because this was her dad's room you know and and kyle has cluttered things and kept things untidy and you know that nostalgia is warring with kind of anger that's simmering underneath of like why can't you keep everything the same uh she was brought in and you know had a hammock in that room for a while until she got her own room just a whole bunch of different thoughts and feelings are stirred up in her just by being in the captain's cabin Right. And it's very clear that this, at least at one point, was a place where she felt comfortable and where she felt at home. Like yeah, this whole. Definitely. Althea's whole vibe is that she loves the ship. She feels like this is her home. She can't imagine being anywhere else. This is where she is most comfortable. And Kyle is the reason that things aren't going well. There's no other reason. Like he's ruining it all and every piece of Kyle that is seeping in to probably one of the most sacred places besides mm-hmm. her room is just making her more mad. Yeah, definitely. But she is taking a little bit of strength from what Kyle is looking at, which, as I mentioned before, is the Vestrit family uh, sailing charts. She has a thought... That a trader's family's charts were among their most guarded possessions. 
How else could one safeguard one's swiftest routes through the inside passage and one's trading ports in lesser-known villages? Still, her father had entrusted these charts to Kyle. It was not up to her to question his decision. It's very funny she says it like that because she absolutely questions the decision. She does not. Yeah, repeatedly. Trust, yeah, she does not trust her father's decision. She doesn't let Kyle be captain. She is comparing every little thing he does to how her father does it. Mm-hmm. We get a description of Kyle that he has blue eyes and unruly blonde hair, and his Chalcedian blood showed in his ways as much as his body. She tried to keep her disdain from showing on her face, but her control was wearing thin. Also, she talks about how Kyle is a man who blushes when he gets angry, red, he gets red cheeks, and how she can't believe her sister would love a man that could show his emotion like that on his face, which I think is really weird because we just came from a book where Fitz blushed all of the time, not necessarily when he was angry wasn't mentioned, but just in general, it was talked about a lot and girls always found that really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so to have Althea be like, ew, gross, he blushes is so weird. <laughs> and it really stood out to me. And I think maybe because I always thought it was funny when girls would jokingly flirt with Fitz about his blushing face. <laughs> There's a couple times in here that she mentions she doesn't know what her sister is thinking or what she finds attractive in this man. And it's really odd because her hatred of Kyle is extreme. Right. I mean, granted, we know how these books go on. Her hatred is pretty justified because Kyle is an easily hateable person. Yes. <laughs> but at this point, it's very, very childish with childish reasons. It's like, oh, no, he's taking away my birthright. I worked hard for this. How could my sister find him attractive? He's ugly. He has different hair and different eyes than my father. Right. Which also, like, girl, get some help. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Uh... Oh, what's his name? Freud. Yes. Freud is like cheering this on from the grave. <laughs> but uh, anyway. we're, we're giving a lot of tough love to Althea here. We both like Althea, but we both had a conversation right before we recorded as well that she isn't as enjoyable right away as we remember. And so it's yes. kind of kind of interesting to pick apart some of her attitudes right now and eventually see her growth right i think it is important too though to be harsh on her and to talk about how she's being a little bit annoying yeah. or just privileged because she does grow mostly and i think it's better to talk now about how immature she is so that we can see the growth over time rather than just be like well we know she turns into a good person so we'll just let it pass like She's still kind of being a brat, so like we're going to say that. Yeah, just like this next description of what the voyage has been. She says she's been at sea too long with this man, and she describes... It's, Kyle had muddied what should have been a simple two-month turnaround trip along Chalcid's coast into a five-month trading trek full of unnecessary stops and marginally profitable trade runs. She was convinced all of it was an effort on his part to show her father what a sly trader he could be. For herself, she had not been impressed. And first of all, we know that Kyle has talked with Efren. Efren has agreed to give him the ship. But Kyle's also taking on the rest of the debt. Right. While also taking on the promise of not trading up the Rainwild River. 
which is massive and where a ton of the income for the trader families come from. Right. It is also a big deal because Althea doesn't quite know at this point what the state of affairs is in the home right? as like they're banking. Like she doesn't understand that. As described later on, she went to see with her father when you, like when she was 10, you said? Yes. And that was in lieu of her mother wanting her to stay home and learn the books and manage the estates. Right. So Althea has no idea what's going on. Yeah. She has never had to be in charge of the estates and it kind of doesn't feel like she ever cared to ask. So she doesn't understand that her family is in extreme debt and they're on the brink of poverty. Yeah. And Kyle does know that. And so the fact that he is trying to get a little bit more profit in the time given him, like it is a little bit of like a, Ooh, look at me. I can make more money. But also like he knows that his family might be in debt forever if he doesn't try to make more money. So I don't blame him for trying to get more. Right. And it's a really immature thing to be like, well, he only made marginal profits because it's still profits at the end of the day. (laughs) And like, I really want (laughs) to read this next paragraph from Althea, the same trip. If it was her father doing this trading run. Right. Yeah, sure. Kyle is new to this and like, clearly he needs help and he is too proud to get any help. Like he is doing things wrong too, but it definitely highlights his, you know, his inexperience and his inability to ask for help or listen to people who know more than him. (laughs) Definitely. But it also is like not his fault that water got into some of the cotton that was on deck. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't plan for a gale to happen last minute to ruin some of the cotton. It just happened. And that's what happens when you have ship a ship with cargo, like, which does, you know, point to his incompetency of overloading it and putting it on the, on the deck, things like that. Safety reasons. Sure. I get all of that. That Althea's point is valid that he is slightly incompetent, but she doesn't have the full picture. Right. Like clearly he is pushing, uh, pushing, you know, the ends to a mean, I right. don't even know if I said that correctly, but <laughs> he's trying, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> he's trying to make profit. He's you know? trying to get some money in his, the pocket of his family. And Kyle questions her about what she was doing in the aft hold. I restowed the cargo. You did. It was a, a statement, almost an accusation. But it was not a question, question, so she did not need to make an answer. Instead, she stood very straight under that piercing gaze. She knew he expected her to babble out explanations and excuses as Kefria would have, but she was not her sister nor his wife. He suddenly slammed his palm down on the table before him, and though the sudden impact made her flinch, she still did not speak. She watched him waiting for her to say something, and then felt an odd sense of victory when his temper snapped. Did you presume to tell the men to change how that cargo was stowed? She spoke very softly, very calmly. No, I did not. I did the work myself. My father has taught me that aboard a ship, one must see what needs doing and do it. That is what I have done. I arranged the casks as father would have had them done, were he here. Those casks are now as every shipment of wine has been stowed since I was ten years old. 
bung up and bilge free, fore and aft, ends wedged off in the wings. They are secure, and they have not already been spoiled by jostling. They will be marketable when we get to Bingtown. His cheeks grew pink. Althea wondered how Kefria could stand a man whose cheeks turned pink when he was angry. She braced herself. When Kyle spoke, his voice was not raised, but the longing to shout the words was clear in his clipped accent. Your father is not here, Althea. That is precisely the point. I am the master of this vessel, and I gave commands as to how I wanted that cargo stowed. Yet again, you have gone behind my back and countermanded those orders. I can't have this interference between me and my crew. You sow discord. So, the thing that she was doing, she was working on, that she wanted to take a nap from, was rearranging how the cargo was stored, contradicting how the captain had wanted it done. Right. From an outside lens with that description, definitely deserved talking to slash yelling at. Right. It is a little strange that she's going behind his back. There's little moments throughout the rest of this conversation where she's like, oh, well, I won't tell him that information because that will be another point against him for father. And it's like, well, then why didn't you just let him ruin the shipment? Like, you don't care. You don't understand the, like, money part of this thing. So just let him ruin the wine, and then he'll figure it out. Like, if you really think that he has no idea, you fixing it for him and letting him take the credit later on isn't going to do you any favors. Just tell your grandpa, or sorry, tell your dad that you told him it was wrong and he did it anyway. Right, yeah. I just... It's so weird how contradictory this all is. It's I think she wanted a confrontation by doing this. There's no I mean, she prepared herself one later. Yeah. Like yeah. she she had a plan for it. And it kind of feels like this isn't the first day of the trip. So she like waited a while. And- well, Kyle's or Kyle said that You've been doing it a lot. <laughs> yes. No, she's been <laughs> sewing Discord as Kyle says a lot, but to move everything in the deck, she waited until they were like into the journey. She didn't well, like not just sewing Discord, but he says, Yet again, you have gone behind my back and countermanded those orders. So I think she's just been doing things that yeah. he hasn't ordered. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is how my dad did it. So I'm gonna do it and nobody can say anything. And to be fair, that would sow Discord. And like yes. is Kyle doing it wrong? Probably. Should Althea be doing it the way she is? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's just hard. And also we get a little peek at angry Kyle. Like Kyle obviously has anger management issues that he needs to have dealt with. He is a bad human being. Yes. And the fact that like Althea is kind of enjoying this going against what he wants on purpose to make him more mad is just so childish. Yeah. That's how to sum her up right now. She's just child pettiness personified. She hates this man and she will do every little action to win her points. Right. And granted, I mean, it is not Althea's responsibility to manage how Kyle handles his anger and it is not on her for his weird outbursts and like slamming his hand on the table and then waiting for her response. That's weird. And he shouldn't have done that. And that's not Althea's fault, but like her getting some weird enjoyment of like, he wants me to be just like my sister, but I'm 
not like other girls, so I won't be doing that. It's like, come on. Like, <laughs> like you're just the child that he's saying you are. I don't know. Like, the fact that she can't see it is a little frustrating. But Althea is disagreeing with Kyle. She's saying she acts on her own, and so it's not really the same as going behind his back. Like, the crew aren't part of it. And Kyle has to say that that's part of it. Like, you being a vestrit and going against what the captain has said makes it seem as though the captain is an incompetent. While part of the crew not liking Kyle is probably Kyle himself. Yes. <laughs> another part is probably the fact that he can't handle an 18-year-old girl on his ship. Like, she's just doing whatever she wants and not really getting in trouble for it up until this point, it seems. So that would probably also not do well for a captain of a ship. <laughs> like, I don't know. He says, were you truly a sailor, I'd make an example of you, one that would prove my orders are the only orders on this ship, but you're nothing but a spoiled merchant's brat. I'll treat you as such and spare the flesh of your back, but only until you cross me again. Take this warning to heart, girl. I am the captain of this vessel, and my word on this ship is law. She does not speak, and the pink spread to Kyle's forehead. He took a breath and reached for control. He speared her with his eyes. And what are you, Althea? She had not expected such a question. Accusations and rebukes she could deal with silently, but in asking her a question, he demanded an answer, and she knew it would be construed as open defiance. So be it. I am the owner of this vessel, she said with as much digni dignity as she could muster. Wrong! This time he did shout. But in an instant he had mastered himself. He leaned forward on the table and near spat the words at her. You are the daughter of the owner. And even were you the owner, it wouldn't make a whit of difference. It's not the owner who commands the ship, it's the captain. You're not the captain, you're not the mate. You aren't even a proper sailor. All you do is take a stateroom to yourself that should be the second mate's and do only the chores it suits you to do. The owner of this vessel is Efren Vestrit, your father. He is the one who gave the vivacia over to my command. If you cannot respect me for who I am, then respect your father's choice to captain his ship. But for my age, he should have made me captain. I know the vivacia. I should be her captain. As soon as the words were out of her mouth, Althea regretted them. It was all the opening he had needed. This voicing of what they both knew was true. <sighs> it's so presumptuous and like... That last sentence, the voicing of what we both knew is true. If she was of age, maybe. But I don't know. I have two very hot takes. The first one is that Kyle might not be wrong about he's, her. He's not. And like, <laughs> it's not a hot take to me. <laughs> I really like Althea. And I think that she's like a she becomes a really good person sailor and like really learns a lot and grows up a lot but like if she isn't even doing normal chores like everybody else like she's not working her way up she just is getting it because of nepotism like she isn't a real sailor and she doesn't get to pretend like she is let's be honest she would be an absolutely horrible captain right now yeah as she is as it stands yes bad 
bad captain. And like, that hurts me to say, because it means I have to agree with Kyle, (laughs) but you might not be wrong. And then my second hot take is that Efren Vestrit is kind of a bad person. (laughs) And this one's a little bit harder, (laughs) but he picked Kyle to run this vessel. He knows who Kyle is. Kyle has been part of the family for, I'm sure, several years because he has three children. So he's had to have been for a while. 14 years. (laughs) Yeah, he's been around for a while. However, he still picked Kyle over like Brashen. And he let he let Althea become this way. He let Althea think that this ship is hers and that she was going to be the next captain. I bet that Althea has said out loud in front of her father, this is my ship. And when I'm her captain and he probably just laughed and in his mind thought that's never going to happen, but didn't say that to her face. And so now if she was three years older or something, sure, maybe, maybe it wouldn't go to Kyle, but it just is really hard because, yeah. I, I don't think that makes him a bad person. I think it makes him a bad person that he knows that he knows Chalcedians don't like women and then let his daughter be on ship with this person that they don't obviously get along. He doesn't respect women. And then on top of that, had Brashen, who he's been pumping up and being like, also, you're the best and I think you're great. And then doesn't pick Brashen, but picks Kyle instead. I just like. I don't think it makes him a bad person, personally. I think it's, I mean, I think it makes him human. Definitely. Because he lost three sons to the blood plague and wanted the daughter who liked sailing kept by him and pampered her because she was the only kid who had interest in sailing. Right. (laughs) I think that Kyle was probably 100% respectful around the house and around Efren and raising the kids and with Kefria. In private, not so much. We know that. But do you think Efren saw all of it? I guess maybe not. I just, I feel like Efren should have done more to, like, ease this situation. And, like, I cannot believe that there is nothing that has happened in front of Efren that, like, maybe Kyle isn't the best choice for this. Right. Like he didn't even go on a practice run with him. He just was like, all right, person I've never sailed with take on over. I don't care what my daughter says. Like, I don't know. I just, I get that he's sick and all and like, you can't plan being sick, but like, (laughs) he's also kind of old. So he probably should have knew that it was on the cards. Like, isn't he only in his like early sixties or something like that? Yeah. But his dad died like pretty close to when he died too. So like they're around the same age. That's fair. And I feel like, I don't, well, I guess, I don't know. You have a young kid. Maybe it like makes you younger. I don't know. It just, it feels like there could have been steps made and he kind of pulled the rug out of, from everyone. That's true. Yeah. There's not a lot of communication from him. I just personally don't think it makes him a bad person. I don't know. I think he I, made some bad decisions. I, but I don't think he's like. Maybe I feel like he's a bad person because it kind of feels like he thinks that women have a place and it's not to be captain of the ship, even though his great grandma was a captain. He's he's one of the traders that kept his wife doing like the whole estate thing. Right. And running the states like 
she maintained her job instead of like some of the other trader families who did not. That's fair, I guess. I didn't take that into consideration. But like, doesn't she talk about how she also liked sailing and that she wanted to stay sailing and he made her stay home with kids? Probably. So like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying he could have made better choices. I'm not a big fan of Efren. <laughs> that maybe I shouldn't go as far as to say he's a bad person, but he makes really bad choices <laughs> and I don't agree with most of them. He's the shrewd figure. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, during this conversation, as we kind of figure out that Kyle isn't really wrong in some of his arguments, when Althea says, but for my age, I should, he should have made me captain. I know the Vivacia, it should, I should be her captain. Kyle's like, nope, you're wrong again. And then he takes it a step too far. Yes. So you should be at home, married off to some fancy boy as spoiled as yourself. You haven't the faintest idea of how to captain a vessel. You believe that because your father has allowed you to play at sailoring, you know how to command a vessel. You've come to believe you're destined to captain your father's ship. You're wrong. Your father only brought you aboard because he has no sons of his own. He has much told me so when Wintrow was born. Were not the Vivacia a live ship requiring a family member aboard, I'd never have tolerated your presence for a moment. But bear this in mind. A member of the Vestrid family is all this ship requires. It needn't be you. If this ship demands a Vestrid aboard her, then she can bear one of my... Then she can bear one that has Haven for a surname. My sons share as much of your sister's blood as mine. There is much vestrit as Haven, and the next time the ship leaves Bingtown, one of my boys will take your place on her. You'll be left ashore. Which is the threat that Althea really, really didn't want to hear. Didn't think that she would ever hear. Right. I think it's really harsh of Kyle to be like, you're just a replacement for your dead brothers. Like, that's a very low blow. And also... Not necessarily true. <laughs> no, not necessarily true at all, I don't think. I mean, maybe in the beginning, the idea was like, you know, making up for the fact that all the brothers had died. But I don't think she's a replacement for them. And I no. I don't know. I think it's just, re- again, after I just like went on this whole big rant about how I hate Efren, like, I don't think he was trying to be that way to his daughter. I think no. she liked what she was doing and he liked letting her live that way. And like... Kyle being like, yeah, you're a woman, so you shouldn't be here is. (laughs) She still has some despair and defiance on her face, still thinking that if her father had been well, none of this would have happened with that optimism. And Kyle tries to confine her to her quarters and she kind of says, well, you've declared I'm not even a sailor, so you can't confine me anywhere. I'm not yours to command. And I have no idea why you fancy that you will command the Vivacia on her next voyage. When we return to Bingtown, I have every expectation that my father will have recovered his health and will resume his command and hold it until such a time as ship and command are both mine. Do you really think so, Althea? He went on. Your father's a good captain, and when he hears what you've been up to, countermanding my orders, sowing discord among the men, making mock of me behind my back. Making mock of you? Althea demanded. 
He gave a snort. Do you think you can get drunk and witless and throw wild words about Dursley Town and not have them come back to me? It only shows what a fool you are. And she frantically thinks through her mind and memories and realizes, oh yeah, I did get drunk once. And I might have been saying stuff. Who was it? All I remember is Brashen there. And then she throws out Brashen's name to Kyle and is like, no, it wasn't him, but makes me think even less of him. Right. Which... To say she specifically remembers Brashen rebuking her. Yes. And then Kyle's like, ah, oh, see, Brashen is a horrible person. He would just listen to you talk bad about me and not say anything. He probably enjoyed it. Like, mm, no, not what she said. But also, she does not make any move to correct that assumption. Right. She just lets him think that and is like, hmm, so sad that Kyle doesn't like Brashen. What? Althea! Like- <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't at this point really like him either right so. but like also for real girl you just gonna lie about like whatever she later she talks about she's like do i own up or do i lie i'm not a liar and it's like well you kind of are because <laughs> <laughs> like you just let truths go by and don't correct them or say them out loud so like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well Brad, or, uh, excuse me kyle also says, well, I'm probably going to leave Brashen ashore as well, and he's not going to be welcome back, so you two can get together and hang out. He also says that probably the only reason reason Brashen is here is because her father wanted them to get together, and now they can try once they're both ashore, which is, like, weird. Because <laughs> he's, I don't know, like six years older than Althea also got on board before Althea was even there. Right. Just a weird comment in general. But like Kyle's trying to be like, oh, he's also not a real sailor. He is a city boy. Like, Kyle, are you a real sailor? Sorry. (laughs) Who are you to choose? But okay, go off, King. Well, Kyle further villain monologues here and explains what actually happened. It was the ship's carpenter who had come back and a bit worse for the grog, talking loudly of how you'd told him I only married your sister because I hoped to get my hands on the family ship because the likes of me would never have a chance at commanding a live ship otherwise. His calm voice suddenly was gritty with fury. She recognized her own words. Oh, she'd been drunker than she thought to voice those thoughts out loud. Coward or liar, she challenged herself. She had either to step up and claim those words and pretend disdain of them, or lie and claim she'd never said them. Well, regardless of what Kyle might say to her, she was Efren Vestrit's daughter. She found her courage. Either lie or lie. Well, I'm an Efren uh, Efren Vestrit's daughter, so I'm gonna lie. What? (laughs) She says she found her courage and is not gonna lie. She says, that's true, I said it. Yeah, but like... She lied before. (laughs) But also, like, either step up and pretend like I didn't really mean it, like, uh, or pretend I didn't say it. Both of those are lying. (laughs) It's so weird. (laughs) That's true. I said it, and it's true. So how does the truth make mock of you? Kyle comes around suddenly and slaps her. Sends her staggering. And... She thinks too far. They'd both gone too far, and she, as she'd always feared they would. Had he feared it too? He seemed to be shaking as badly as she was. That wasn't for me, he said huskily. That was for your sister. Drunk as a soldier in a public tavern, and you as much as call her a whore. 
Do you realize that? Do you truly think she'd need to buy a man with the bribe of a live ship to command? She's a woman that any man would be proud to claim, even if she came with not a copper to her name, unlike you. You they'll have to buy a husband for, and you'd better hope to the gods that your family fortunes do better, for they'd have to dower you with half the town before any decent man would look at you. Get to your quarters before my temper truly runs away with me. Now. Oh yeah, because it's definitely Althea's fault that he couldn't control him his own body parts and slapped her. Right. Like, okay. Although, although I do believe him when he says it wasn't for me and it was for his wife. Like, he speaks very fondly of Kefria and we know he does love her but he still puts in there like you know she'd be a woman that any man would be glad to claim you know right. like he speaks of her as an object which is true to his chelsea and roots but it seems kind of coming from a place of truth in my eyes right well I think Althea's sister is a more traditional woman she's got the more traditional feminine values that he would appreciate and i'm sure she likes the role that she's in she like some women like to be a mother and a stay-at-home mom and that's totally fine and i'm glad that she found a thing that she likes but i don't love that her husband uses that as like see women are property right and like that makes her a good woman and you're really bad like it's just of course And it also is really interesting because it is a little bit true that he would not have a live ship without her. If she didn't like him back, he wouldn't have this opportunity. And I think he knows that, which is why it makes him so mad, because nothing he did would have earned him this spot outside of marrying into the family. And that makes him big mad because he thinks he is so good at everything and definitely he could have earned it if it was fair. And like, I don't know. I just, he's not great. (laughs) It's a lot of nuance here too. Yeah. Like his feelings because we know like kind of where he comes from and that he is doing honestly the best he can for the family, even if it's doing a poor job of it and doing bad things to try to advance the family. Right. And I think it's really interesting to see a character who like at some level is a good family man who just has the completely terrible values. Yeah. (laughs) He was like raised in this system that put him on a pedestal as a man. And because that feels good, there's no need to try to challenge that or to step down from it. So he can continue to justify his horrible actions because it's not like the women could do better. And it just is really sad. It's it's like Regal in a way that like if he would have been raised in a household like Althea's where men and women are a little bit more equal and like the gender roles aren't so strictly enforced and like corporal punishment isn't okay, then maybe things would have been different and he would have been a good person and he wouldn't have gone to sell slaves or hit people when he gets angry. But this is who we are stuck with. And so you have to see those glimmers of human and like the glimmers of like, okay, at the core Kyle thinks he is a good person Yes, and stemming from that, you can understand what he's coming from. And Mm -hmm. it's really frustrating because 
he is a very easy to hate person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like it's hard. This is like probably probably going to be the most likable he is. <laughs> and oh, hundred percent. The more already, you read him, the worse he gets. Yeah, it's so. already not good. <laughs> like he's already resorting to violence. So. <laughs> Althea turns and leaves with Kyle pushing her out. Mild is working in the area and obviously has heard everything. And she goes back to her stateroom. She isn't worried about Mild spreading what he heard because she doesn't feel she's done anything wrong. And she knows that everybody will be on her side in the end. Yeah. And I don't think they will be. Um, I don't think that they'll like Kyle more because of this, maybe slightly because they, he like told Althea a couple hard truths, but he also brought the dead kids into it. So like kind of, <laughs> right, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like Althea has an elevated point of view of herself too. Definitely. And she is thinking and musing on the fact that, you know, the ship is her home and Kyle couldn't force her out, right? And then she's thinking about the stateroom. So I did the math. She talks here about how she got the stateroom seven years ago. Um, there's later evidence to this, and I can point it out when we get there. But essentially, she didn't start coming onto this ship until she was 10. And she got the second mate's room when she was 12. So didn't really earn it, <laughs> but was given her own room. So she only had to share a bunk with her dad for two years. And then puberty hits and she has her private room and she's probably the only woman on board. Yeah. And she's given that room and she's been there for seven years now. Yep. So she's 18 years old. Or no, probably sorry. close to 19. Right. There's, I mean, it's Robin Hobb. Years right. are iffy. irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's really interesting to think about how she really doesn't see how she didn't earn this spot. She didn't work her way up to that, to the second mate's bunk. She got it because she's the captain's daughter. And she didn't have to work as hard as everybody else because she's the captain's daughter. And that becomes more apparent later on in her descriptions as well. I mean, she first is thinking about, you know, let the, the slap bruise and darken on her face to, you know, show the family one more thing that Kyle got wrong. Uh, and maybe when she got home, her sisters and her parents would look at it and perceive what sort of vermin they had welcomed into their family when they had wedded Kefria to Kyle Haven. He was not even trader stock. He was a mongrel, part Chalcedian and part wharf rat. But for marrying her sister, he'd have nothing now. Nothing. He was a piece of dung, and she would not cry because he was not worth her tears. Only her anger. Only her anger. And then she goes into a description of what is in her room. Right. I do want to point out that Althea's very classist, much like how yes. Wintro was. Yep. But in this, we get a little peek at how Chalcedians are perceived in this area. That her main thing that she hates about Kyle is that you can tell he's Chalcedian and that 
he is Chal- like he was he's half Chalcedian. He looks Chalcedian and he sounds like he's Chalcedian. And that's like where a lot of her hatred for him stems from. And that's pretty rough because yeah. like not a very good reason to not like somebody is just because no. they're not the same they don't look the same or sound the same as you. Yeah. It's like very not good. Like I get racist. it. Yeah. Very racist. <laughs> and like, I do feel really bad. Cause like, obviously Chalced isn't a great place, especially for women or people who would oh, like no. to be free. Yeah. Chalced <laughs> is horrible, but, but assign like, that same value to like somebody from Jamalia or something, you know? Like, yeah. And it's like, just not right. Yeah. It's not fair to be like this one person definitely bad because it's going to be bad because of where he came from. Like, I don't know, not a, not a good look, but anyway, I just want to point out that that's something we kind of have skimmed over, but she is very classist Mm -hmm. and a little bit racist towards Chalcedians. Yeah. So after a few moments, the beating of her heart calms and she kind of looks around her stateroom. She has a small desk and a tiny railing containing papers She has a bookshelf and a scroll rack and she has a small chart table that would fold down and a selection of charts for her father had insisted she learned to navigate even to take her own bearings. Her instruments for that were within a small cushion case that clips securely to the wall. She has sea clothes and the only decoration in the room was a small painting of the vivacia that she had commissioned herself. Jared Papas had done it. And that alone would have made it a valuable painting, but it was the subject matter that endeared it to Althea. In the painting, the vivacious sails were bellied full of wind and her bow was cutting the waves cleanly. So she has a, this stateroom has a lot of amenities. It has, you know, a painting that she commissioned herself, probably not with money that she made. But with spending money her dad gave her. Yes. That she probably quote unquote made during the voyage of one of his train trips or something. Right. But a very fancy painting that would make it valuable just from the painter itself. And later on, she talks about, you know, she goes through the chest of things that she bought. She bought toys for uh, for Selden and for Malta. She buys a shirt for Selden. Malta gets a doll. I thought it was a top. Oh, and then you're she, right. And then it is a buys, top. I was thinking shirt. Oh, uh, like, <laughs> like a top. Like no, no, it was just top. a spin top, yeah, a painted top. I'm like, yes. what a weird shirt. <laughs> and then, and then three bolts of like silk or something like that for her mother, herself, and for Kefria. And she talks about, oh, and I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna, you know, go to the most expensive seamstress because material like this deserves that and make a beautiful gown and i know just how it will be it will be with these earrings that i bought like she's describing a ton of valuable material wealth that she has in this small room and thinks that she is a sailor yeah it just doesn't line up no (laughs) and at no point does she think like oh i'm really grateful that i had the opportunity to like have all these amenities it's just like of course she has these amenities she's a trader and she deserves it and she's going to be the captain it -hmm. just is really weird like her dad has amenities so she should get amenities right it i don't know not great (laughs) but you know privilege of being born in the right family sure yeah definitely kyle's still a big poop head (laughs) (laughs) he's not great totally agree and she does 
you know, talk a little bit more about Vivacia here and how Vivacia was first built. And as you mentioned before, it was um, her great grandmother. So Efren, her dad's grandmother, uh, requested it to be built. And that was back when women could still do such things without creating a scandal, back before the stupid Chalcedian custom of showing one's wealth by keeping one's women idle and taken that had taken hold in Bingtown. And she was sailing until she was 70, and then Efren's dad sailed until he was 62, and then Efren is probably upper 50s, low 60s, something like that, too. Right. Which is also a little weird, because... So, Althea's grandpa died 14 years ago when she was four. Yes. So, potentially, that means her dad has only been captain for 14 years. Yeah. That's, like, really sad. <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, good for the longevity of their genes, but, like, not so good for the fact that he didn't actually get to enjoy being captain. <laughs> yeah. Captain for 14 years, during which three of his sons died. And 10 of those, like, so within four years. Although maybe it, it is possible that he lost sons before he lost his father. Right. It's very unclear exact timing yeah. on those. But it is before Althea gets to be on ship. Yes. It does. It does also mention that she was there when her grandfather died. He was on the bow of the ship and it says she had known that the shivers were both regret and welcome. The vivacia would miss her bold captain, but she welcomed the flowing of his anima into her timbers. His death put her one life closer to awakening. And I'm just sitting here thinking, mana? (laughs) (laughs) What is anma? (laughs) Anma. I I just figured it was something like a life force or something like that. Okay. Maybe it's just like a word I haven't heard before. Um... I don't know if we ever see it again. No, that's why I like specifically highlighted it. Cause I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what are we, I wonder if it was supposed to be a little bit more fleshed out and instead wasn't. Anma is the practice of traditional Japanese massage. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's what it's referring to. <laughs> I don't either. Maybe it was another magic that was supposed to be covered, but like got scrapped later. I don't know. But either way, it is anma that is taken from the bodies. Yeah, interesting. I noticed that too, and I just kind of like associated it with, you know, mana or yeah. life force or. Yeah, like I knew what it was yeah. referring to. I just thought it was interesting that the wording was so strange. Mm-hmm. So we have descriptions now as a first time reader going through of bodies dying on the ship and this anima being taken in and the ship shuddering. And we get kind of a sense that live ship is in fact a descriptor as well as the proper noun for it. It is supposed to be alive. It has feelings, it has thoughts. There's talk of it awakening. Right. We also know not now, but later that this is one of the youngest live ships. Yes. So it's the most recently built. Um, Althea talks about how, Specifically, the wood of the figurehead, but also the keel is made with the wizard wood. So it's not fully wizard wood, but wizard wood has been used to make this boat. 
And it's really interesting as rereaders because we know Wizardwood is the cocoon of a dead dragon. Yes. And that part of the magic of awakening is because this has like thousands of lives in it, not just the three (laughs) generations. But Althea does think about how her dad is the next and the last before Vivacia awakens and how she feels really bad being excited about it because in her lifetime she will get to see Vivacia alive but also like her dad has to die for that to happen yeah and then she knocks on the live wood part of the bow to like hope that you know maybe that won't happen like a knock on wood and <laughs> I had the horrible thought of maybe her dad dies later so quickly because it wasn't real wood she knocked on. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, uh, she was specifically knocking on wood, not for her father dying and awakening Vivacia, but for her father dying too soon and having her mother and Kyle have authority over her. Yes. Yeah. So she knocked on the wizard wood, which isn't wood. So <laughs> a little dark, but... But we get kind of a description that the uh, the figurehead's eyes are closed right now, and she is painted. But when she awakens, when her father dies and goes into, when Althea's father dies and goes into the ship, Vivacia will open her eyes. She will gain the color of life, and it won't just be paint anymore. It will be the actual thing. What's really interesting is that the vivacia has figurehead is a woman with blonde hair and althea is sure she's going to have green eyes yep and that kind of sounds like a chalcedian if you ask me (laughs) (laughs) which is so strange that althea's all like oh my family members we all have dark hair and dark eyes and that's the way it should be then she's like oh the vivacia is so beautiful she's gonna be the best thing i've ever seen and she's gonna have blonde hair and green eyes just like my brother-in-law who I hate because he looks like a Chelsea. Well, he has blue eyes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, I just thought that was like a really weird detail of like, oh, so she doesn't look like a vestrit. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the Vivacia is close to waking and we get a little bit more in depth of how, or I guess why Althea thinks so strongly of being the next owner and the captain Mm -hmm. she talks about how she knows the ship and that she can feel the vibrations of the ship they have this connection she's been on the ship a lot since she was young she has been in every nook and cranny she climbed the ropes like she was a, a a child climbing a tree and like she had all these experiences and grew closer with the ship that she knew in her lifetime would wake up and realize and she feels as though the ship is going to love her the most this is why it's her ship mm-hmm. it's not just because her dad owns the ship and she's gonna get it it's right. like this ship is my best friend and we're gonna be besties for life right yeah and also she kind of thinks in her in her mind at least or maybe it's just wishful thinking that Kyle's threat is empty that he's going to leave her on shore and bring one of his sons because she goes over, well, the sons aren't really fit. Selden is too young, but also he has the soul of a farmer. And then Wintrow was given to the priests. Kyle, I guess, wouldn't hesitate to pull one, but Wintrow is definitely a priest. 
which is also very funny because Selden becomes like a dragon boy. Yeah. Yeah, And he like travels all over the world. And then Wintrow becomes like kind of king to the pirate isles or what, like the stepfather of the king of the pirate isles. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like kind of funny that she is like, neither of them would be suited for this life. Okay. (laughs) But her plan, now that she's thinking about it, is basically to go back and tell exactly what Kyle's plan is to her father. And her father will see how terrible Kyle is and definitely give her command of the ship. Which is a bit of a childish response, right? Like, yeah, what Kyle said is really horrible and like what he did cross the line, but it's not worth getting him out of control. I don't think that Efren would listen to her story and be like, you're right. You deserve to be in charge and you're way better than him. He would be like, well, sounds like you guys have a conflict to work out. And like, I just don't think I think it's very childish to be like, well, I'm going to tell my dad and he's going to make it better. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> not how it works. <laughs> and then immediately in the next paragraph is talking about, You know, she shifted in her bunk. It's a little bit too small. She should have the ship's carpenter come and fix it just to get a little bit more comfortable in this room. Oh, right. He betrayed me. Well, we never liked each other anyways, so it's fine. So it's it's just like, again, I'll just have somebody work and make my life more comfortable. Right. I'm not going to do it on my own, of course. It's just that she has, I mean, she probably doesn't have the skill or, you know, experience to do carpentry like that. But it's also like... The whole attitude of ownership, I'm the captain, I own this thing, just, it'll be done for me. Yeah. That whole superiority complex. (laughs) And then it goes into Brashen, because she's thinking, oh, he betrayed me. Oh, I shouldn't have known it wasn't Brashen. He wasn't a man to go about behind another's back, no matter what Kyle might think of him. No. Brashen had told her to her face, and quite rudely, that she was a childish little troublemaker, and he'd thank her to stay away from his watch. As she mulled on it, that night in the tavern came clearer in her head. He'd chewed her out as if she were a green hand, telling her she ought to not criticize the captain's decisions to the crew, nor talk out her family business in public. She'd known what to say to that. Not everyone feels ashamed to speak of their family, Brash and Trell. That was all she'd had to say. Then she'd risen from the table and stalked away. Let him sit there and choke on that, she told herself. Like, a bit uncalled for, Althea. I don't... Yeah, talk to you like a green hand because you were talking crap about the captain's decisions to the crew. Like... You're dumb. That was a dumb move. (laughs) Also, he should talk down to you. Like, he is higher in rank than you. Yeah. And, like... I guess maybe not technically anymore because Kyle stripped that from him. But also but like, she's not really a soldier or a sailor. Right. So I don't know. It just, I don't know. I feel like it's a good characteristic that Brashen is willing to like call her out. Yeah. Call her out and be like, Hey, you're doing something wrong and you shouldn't do that. And the fact that she like threw his history in his face, knowing full well that that was hurtful. Like, I guess she was drunk, but like still the fact that she, in remembering this isn't even a little bit remorseful about it. She's just thinking about how rude he was. Yeah. It is really 
telling of her character. <laughs> she she claims her father's actions as her own. She says he'd probably have ended up in Chalced, a face full of slave tattoos, were it not for Efren Vestrit. And yet he dared to speak to her like that. Right. Just like my father will hear of this is she's she's Draco Malfoy. Basically. Literally. <laughs> but it's just really frustrating. Like if Draco was a genuinely nice person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just so I don't know. She's very full of herself and she like cannot understand that she isn't the highest on the totem pole. And she thinks that she deserves to be because her dad has earned respect and has done all this stuff for years. So obviously everyone should respect her in the same way, but she hasn't done anything to earn that respect except for have the same last name. And also she doesn't understand, like, I don't know, going with that part, she doesn't understand the family or the trader dynamics in general, because yeah, Efren has earned respect, but the other trader families from what I remember, kind of pity and look down on him as well because he won't trade up the Rainwild River. I don't think they look down on him. They just pity him and they think he's kind of an old fool. Yeah. Like, so. yeah. It And also, like, it's admirable that Brashen has worked his way out of that. Like, yeah, your dad gave him the chance, but he did all the work. So... It's not like a, wow, he should be nicer to me because of what my dad did for him. Like, your dad just gave him a job. He did all the hard work of fixing his reputation. Yeah. And, like, living up to what her dad saw in him. Hmm. And, like, yeah, it's big that he gave him the chance. But, like, her pretending like Brashen had nothing to do with it is really frustrating. (laughs) But also, she makes a comment he thought entirely too much of himself did brash and trowel. Most trowels did like, <laughs> um, pot meat kettle. Like, right. You, I know. I thought that, I thought that too. Like, you think too much of yourself. All like, trader families, all traders. Uh, and yeah. then she goes into how his brother, Sirwin had presumed to ask her to dance twice. He was prettier manners, but he wasn't as muscly as Brashen. <laughs> it's just so dumb. Childish. 18 year old. You yeah. Know. Of like, if he was more muscly, maybe. But it's, it's just funny. Yeah. I don't know. Because then she also goes into her father's relationship with Brashen a bit more and basically says they didn't have a relationship besides Efren giving him respect as like a good sailor and in private telling her like he's a good sailor because it was just master and man on the sea. And then Brashen never ate at their table or anything. He was just welcome over at their house once in a while and he rarely came. So it wasn't like a close relationship, but it was one of respect. Right. And clearly her dad did think highly of him. Yes. Like he thought, he told her specifically that like he saw a lot of promise in him and that he is doing great things. And I think maybe this is also partially why Althea doesn't like Brashen because her dad praises him so much about being such a good sailor and not to make assumptions, but I kind of doubt he did that with her. Like not, I don't think that he like never told her she did a good job, but like, I don't think he was like, wow, you're such a great sailor. And you were really like, I really saw it in you the whole time. And she was like, that's a great knot, dear. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> and that would probably be really frustrating. Althea then contemplates whether she wants to go out on deck and, you know, counteract Kyle's keeping her to her quarters. She says there wasn't a hand on this ship that would dare lay hands on her. And not just because she was Althea Vestret. Most of them liked and respected her. And that had been a thing she'd earned for herself, not bought with her name. And then decides that she won't go out because she's so kind and compassionate and doesn't want them to get in trouble with Kyle. But I thought it was really interesting that her view of herself is that she earned the respect that all the sailors give her. And from what we've seen so far, it kind of feels like they, they tolerate her. They like, I think they liked her around, but they knew that she wasn't a sailor, right? (laughs) She was the captain's kid who was just running around. She, even makes the comment, even if she did not stand a regular watch, she knew the work of every hand aboard and could do it. So she admits that she doesn't do regular chores. She doesn't do everything. Like her dad made her learn every position and she can't do it better than the best or is even one of the top 10 she just can do everything and she knows her dad made her do that so that she would be able to take over someday. Possibly. I mean, maybe that's how his dad did it with him right. or he was doing with his sons, but like it doesn't make you a captain. No. And like the fact that she sees no problem with everyone else having to earn their stripes and you have to work your way up and you have to do regular shifts, but she doesn't, she just has to know how to do them to be a good captain. I just don't, I don't get the logic. I don't get the gap of like. It's because she's a kid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I do feel bad. And this is like a part of why I don't like Efren because he should have put his foot down and say, like, if you really want to be captain, you need to work harder. You can't just pick and choose. You don't get to lay around and take naps. Like you have to do shifts regularly and like you can do whatever shift you want but you need to do it like everybody else. And I feel like that would have gone such a long way and she would have learned a lot more from that. And instead he let her do whatever she wants. And she even talks about how her hands are like dry and scratchy and how that's her least favorite part of working on a ship. And she's going to have to like hit the pumice stone really hard later to like smooth it out. And (laughs) I don't know. It's just really frustrating because Like, I don't think other people can just smooth away the hard work they just had to do for five months because they didn't get to pick and choose which parts they were doing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So she's looking at her gifts that she bought and thinking about the summer ball and having to pumice her hands smooth and hoping somebody will ask her to dance, but not Sir Wintrell, someone more muscly than that. And she is talking like for you know a good page or so about the various accoutrements and accessories and jewelry that yeah. she'll wear. How there's a bracelet her grandmother gave to her when she died, but her mother is too jealous to let her wear it. Maybe this time she'll get to. It's just all very noble child, spoiled, 
a lot of hints of Malta that we see later. Yes. She's holding the green fabric and thinking of how she wants to accentuate her small bosom to make it look better. And she wants to also point out her curvy hips and not too much so that she can't dance because it's the spring dance. So. At least like Althea has an interest and, you know, is 18 and has other hobbies. I guess. Malta yeah. is like 13 and thinking the same thing. I know. Yeah. And Malta's like doing. 12. I don't know how old she is. Yeah. Malta's doing it more to like, I got to seduce a man so that I can have money. And Althea's like, I got to do this because I'm hot. <laughs> like yeah. a teenager would. And like, True. <laughs> fair enough. Like, but like a 12 year old being like, I'm going to seduce a man. Like, girl, please. No, be we'll a child. We'll get to Malta when we get to Malta. Okay. <laughs> we will. I can't. <laughs> and then she talks of Ivasia a bit. Oh, they can't separate us now. And talks about her bond a bit. And she says, this bond between us is something my father intended as well. It is why he brought me aboard when I was so young, that we might come to adulthood already knowing one another. There was a second tiny shivering of the ship's timbers, so faint another might not have noticed it. But Althea knew the vivacia too well to be deceived. She closed her eyes and poured herself forth into her ship, all her fears and anger and hopes, and in turn she felt the soft stirring of the vivacia's as yet unawakened spirit answering her soothingly. And then she finishes off her section with kind of a hope for the future that they're going to be at their side, one another. They're going to be besties, like you said, Emma. Althea knew the ship would run willingly before the wind for her and would battle adverse seas with all her heart. Together, they would seek out trade ports and goods that not even the traders of Bingtown could match. Wonders beyond even those of the rain wild folk. And when she died, it would be her own son or daughter that stepped up to the helm, not one of Kyle's get. This she promised to both herself and the ship. Right. I will say we also skipped over a part where she feels a little remorse that she has a hand in helping get Brash and kicked off the ship. True. Yeah. Um, but it's quickly she, gone. But yeah. She she's kind of like <laughs> he might have kind of worked his way up, but he's way too prideful to be a good sailor. And he looks down on me all the time. And it's like, you look down <laughs> on everybody, Althea. And also she decides that it's not that big of a deal because ultimately that'll be just one more thing that Kyle does wrong for her dad. Right. And so it's a win for her. So then she stops caring about it. Um, but that did happen. Yeah. We skipped over it. That's <laughs> all right. The last part here, the last perspective is Paragon. We meet one of the live ships, but not a typical live ship an example of a live ship no he has been beached um and we find out for the past 30 years he is dozing although that's a word that the humans used and he doesn't fully agree because he doesn't think it's the same he can't sleep like humans do he can just go off into his memories yes and there was one piece or one place in his past that he used most frequently for that he was not entirely sure what it was he was recalling Ever since his logbooks had been taken from him, his memory had begun to stretch and grow thin. There were growing gaps in it now, places where he could not make the events of one year connect to those of another. Sometimes he thought perhaps he should be grateful for that. So as he dozed in the sun, what he chose to recall was satiation and warmth. The gentle scratching of the sand beneath his hull translated into an elusively similar sensation that he refused to be completely called to his mind. Do you think, I think you're, I see you nodding at me here. I think this is when he was a dragon and was 
sleeping in a desert somewhere because they just ate. Right. He does call it an ancient memory mm-hmm. of feeling replete and satisfied and warm. Mm-hmm. And With I, the sand scratching his hull to be very, very similar to something else. So. Right. And I will say in later series, we find out that dragons love sand to like roll in sand because it gets under their scales and kind of like cleans them and itches them for them. So yeah, I think this is a drag. I think this is a hint that once they were dragons and you would. Prob- Although it's not really a hint until you reread the series. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you would catch it unless you're a rereader. But as yeah. a rereader, his memory that he's going back to. There's two men's voices that stir him from his memory. We get the information that he has been beached there for 30 years. And this and he and one of them, uh, Paragon figures out, is from Jamalia. Mingsley. Mingsley, yes. And the other is, as we know, yeah, Devad or David with a A instead of an I. (laughs) (laughs) I like Devad better. Uh, Restart, I believe. I believe is his last name. It's not said in this one. Restrit. Restart. I don't know. Restart. Something like that. Kind of a family friend, but also fallen on hard times and kind of looking for money. Money. Fair enough. But we do get a little bit of exposition and background knowledge of what's happening with the traders and kind of what's going on at home. And about the live ships themselves, that they don't rot or anything like that. Yeah. And we find out that Mingsley can't believe that this has been beached for 30 years because it looks brand new. Like there's no problems with it. There's no barnacles, which is when Devad tells him that, of course, it doesn't. It's a wizard would. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're so expensive and such a great find. And then, of course, Mingsley's asking, okay, great. You want to sell me this one? Why is it alone if they're so valuable? <laughs> right. And Devad is like, well, I guess I'll tell you. There's a reputation for very bad luck surrounding this ship, and he has killed a lot of sailors. But also, it's just because they're so superstitious. You know how the yeah. sailors are. Including the owner and his son, he says. Which we know to be Kennet as rereaders and his father. And Kennet is Lucto, still... I believe is his father's name. Lucto Ludluck? Yep. What a unlucky yeah, name. I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Kennet is not actually dead. And Paragon did not kill this family. It was the pirate. Ergot, yes. Yes. So... The people here do not know that, though, and first-time readers would not know that that is who Kenneth is, but we are hearing about how Paragon is this kind of scary boat. Mm-hmm. And he's already kind of, you know, very interesting perspective to live in. Yes. Because the the first paragraph, he kind of hints at, like, oh but they won't let me, you know, do this, like go all the way asleep and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's obviously not like a normal thought pattern. Yeah. And then we get this ex- exposition, as you were saying, Mingsley, the person from Jamalia wants to buy this, not as a ship, but to chop up into little pieces and resell different carvings that are come alive to the Jamalian court. And, he wonders if Devad knows how much people would pay for something like that. And he says, no. And the young man, the younger man, Mingsley, says, of course you don't. It's never occurred to you, has it? Come on, man, be honest with me. 
Why hasn't this ever been done before? I don't know. The older man spoke too hastily to be believable. Right, Mingzili replied skeptically. All the years Bingtown has been existed on the cursed shores, and no one has thought of marketing Wizardwood anywhere except to the residents of Bingtown, and then only as ships? What's the real catch? Does it have to be this big before it can quicken? Does it have to be immersed in salt water for a certain amount of time? What? It's just never been done. Bingtown is an odd place, Mingsley. We have our own traditions, our own folklore, and our own superstitions. And we find out that when the ancestors left Jamalia all those years ago, they came to colonize the cursed shores as well. And most of them came because they had no other options left. Mm-hmm. Criminals, uh, some were shamed or ruined their family names, basically all exiles. And they were given, you know, uh, 200, what is it, lefers of land and would be granted amnesty for their past. And the satrap also promised that uh, they would be left in peace with the trade monopoly over whatever goods they found, but they would have to pay a 50% tax on their profits. And that has lasted for a long time until the current son of the previous satrap, Cosgo, is now in power, and he has sold some more land and trading rights to new people who are moving in. And mostly because he finds the contents of his coffers too small for the habits of pleasure he acquired while waiting for his father to die. Chalcedian pleasure herbs is listed that they are very expensive, and once you try them, the other herbs are not as effective, so you always have to go back to that. And you have to keep buying more is the implication. So he sold a bunch of people new trading and land grants for Bingtown and the Cursed Shores. And Mingsley then states, and we have come and been very poorly welcomed by you all. You act as if we will snatch the bread from your mouths. And then we all know business begets more business. Which is really interesting because obviously people are pretty upset because the satrap or the Cosgo or whatever went back on his word, not because those people are here and sure they're taking it out on those people, but mostly because a lot of the people coming are kind of unsavory and like Mm -hmm. just want a ton of money. They're not really good people. And also they don't know what's actually happening. And David does Devad, whatever (laughs) (laughs) he, he does know because he is, part of a trader family. He knows the Rainwild traders. He knows where the Wizardwood comes from. They he, know those secrets. Right. He he also knows the curses that come with. Like yeah. the whole reason that they get to keep all this stuff and had such a good deal going on is because they've had to live through the curses and of being here, which is like children dying or not being able to give birth as easily as other people. And that's like a big deal. And yet, you know, the, these new people are coming in and being like, that's not real. You guys are just superstitious. Right. So pretty clear why they wouldn't be very welcome. Also, they like aren't very respectful, respectful, it seems. <laughs> yes. So we learn that the Paragon is mutilated. His face is chopped up a bit and vandalized, as Mingsley says. And 
is wondering why the live ship isn't responding because Mingzi has heard the live ships move and them speak down at the docks. Paragon is just kind of sitting there, quote unquote, dozing, as he said before. And Devad does say the Paragon speaks only when it pleases him. I don't doubt he's heard every word we said. Mingsley is making a circuit of the ship, looking to see what he could probably buy it for, make a deal with uh, for Devad or as a go-between between the Ludluck family and himself, keeping it down low and discreet as they both say multiple times because Devad would definitely be on the outs as a trader if he was caught trying to sell a live ship. And for the purpose of taking the wizard wood to make new things. Right. Well, even just selling a, a live ship would right. probably, you know, keep him on the outs. But he didn't even know to begin with that Mingsley wanted to dismantle it and right. not have it as a ship. So Devad is having reservations like, I don't even know if the Ludlux would want to sell him for that. Plus, I don't know if I want to try to make a deal to sell him for that. So, yeah. And so they're, they've both agreed that they're going to pretend that isn't the reason. Mingsley is going to tow the boat away and have it discarded somewhere else. He says, out of sight, out of mind. And Devad is very uneasy, but isn't really saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, Devad is definitely someone who is like a Weasley character. He kind of clearly is having like a rough time and like needs money. And he's kind of, he doesn't care who he gets in touch with to make it. He does have some morals and everything like that. It's just kind of, he's trying to toe a line and it's It's not from the perspectives we get. It's not real well. Yeah. It seems as though his wife who is now, past was kind of his moral compass and without her there he doesn't know what to do (laughs) and i do feel bad for him a little bit but i don't know i do also want to say it's not super clear if he does actually know what wizardwood is like i don't do we know for a fact that all the traders know what wizardwood is Mm -hmm. or is it just the rainwild people who know that's true. I, I feel like he does. He's a trader, so he knows the ra- wild traders exist. Right. And that it's probably a closely guarded secret, but he might not know what it actually is, which only a few Rainwild traders know as right. well. So, yeah, I don't think it's like every Rainwild trader knows. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, but there's still a big secret that all of the traders guard, and that's the Rainwild traders themselves and right. the curse, quote unquote curse. Right. I do wonder why people who have live ships don't have more children with deformities because they're extra close to the carcass, right? Well, I guess the carcass isn't there anymore. It's just the yeah. cocoon. Yep. What do you think they did with the dead serpent I babies? Just, I don't, I think it's described later to be honest. Oh, I can't remember. It might be just like a small paragraph, but either way, Mingsley is trying to get, this deal on the road. He is trying to get some negotiations because Paragon isn't talking and is disfigured, but he's going to treat Devad <laughs> to a meal and have him meet his investors. And then Devad can talk to his investors, which Devad isn't super excited to do. He doesn't really want to be seen in public yep. with these people, but it seems as though that's what they're going to do. And they walk off and Paragon can no longer hear them. Yeah, uh, I do want to say that Mingsley, uh, during this conversation with Devad, is is talking 
one time about bring I his first thought was you know hacking off the figurehead and bringing it to the satrap as a gift for more land and stuff and says what possessed someone to chop the face up so badly i wonder if an artisan can reshape it into something more pleasing <laughs> which i thought was a, a fun foreshadowing for fitz that we get later <laughs> yes fitz's face at least <laughs> yes but uh also uh davad does say what you are speaking of is entirely something else uh trying to davad is saying you know i thought you were gonna buy and refit it as a ship he says, none of the old traders would deal with you if you did such a thing. As for me, I would be ruined entirely. And that's kind of what I was talking about. Um, that, like, he's really skirting the line here. And Devad gives credence to your slimy characterization. Yeah. Because he still goes ahead with it. Right. He's very desperate. Yeah. So, it's very clear that he is even he's reluctant, knowing, yeah. but he goes along with it. Yeah. Knowing the dangers to his reputation isn't really putting his foot down about it yeah so he goes ahead they walk off and the paragon is left with his own thoughts and he says chopped into bits paragon tried the phrase out loud well it does not sound pleasant on the other hand it would at least be more interesting than laying here and it might kill me it might the prospect pleased him he let his thoughts drift again toying with this new idea he had nothing else to occupy his mind Right. And we get more of the Paragon. As we know, like, Paragon is very suicidal right now, and he has a directive from Kennet to kill himself, basically, because Paragon offered to take the, the very horrible memories that Kennet had when he was a kid, or when he was growing up, at least, and what happened to him. And he did so, and then when Kennet got revenge on Urgot's crew and Urgot himself, he told Paragon to sink himself, so all those memories were gone forever. And it didn't happen, so Paragon is still like, well, I have to kill myself. Right. It's not great. I feel really bad for Paragon. I think, truthfully, he's the most likable character so far <laughs> that I've read. <laughs> and he's pretty gross. I think Barandal is... That's fair. Barandal's the best. I love Barandal. But yeah, Paragon, I don't know. He's a very unfortunate character. I feel very badly for him. I really do wonder what kind of people the Ludlucks were that he became the way. we. I know part of what is wrong, quote unquote wrong with Paragon, is that he is two different dragon yes. cocoons. So that's part of it. But... Also, like, they do absorb generations of people and have part of those personalities. And I just wonder if, like, the Ludlucks were all kind of really bad. I mean, I don't think they were all really bad. They were attacked by the pirate and then the pirate used them forever. Right. Like, I guess like, that's also kill part people of it. And yeah, loot and yeah. Like <laughs> it wasn't. I don't know. I just I don't know. It feels bad. I don't like the Paragon has to go through that. It also, though, though, does come into question, like, why do the cases that had the serpent bodies in them have, like, some sort of tie to dragons later on? And, like, they remember the dragon they used to be or whatever. I don't know. Because, like, the body isn't in it. 
it's just the spit of dragons and it has like their memories. Is it just or the cocoon or is it the whole thing that kind of calcifies? I don't know. I, don't I feel like the husk of the body comes out and they just use the cocoon. Yeah, maybe. But either way, I feel like it's really weird that like using two different ones becomes two dragons when like their bodies aren't there. And like ultimately every dragon is just like memories of other dragons. Yeah. Like multiple dragons help with multiple hatchlings and they don't have multiple personalities. So I don't know. Just weird things that I think about. But it's also the serpent itself, you know. That's fair. That's fair. But they help make the cocoon specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, because the serpent's just eating the cocoon afterwards to gain the memories of other people, but like they still have their own memories. They still have right their whole life cycle or whatever. So yeah, hmm. fair point. Anyways, that is chapter two. We are introduced to some new characters again. We were pretty hard on Althea this time, but she kind of deserves it. Yes. Don't fret. We'll be nicer as we go along and also harsher to Kyle. (laughs) We don't like Kyle. We're not pro Kyle in this household. Definitely definitely don't like Kyle. (laughs) Anyways, uh, if you do have thoughts on that or questions to us about our thoughts on the characterization or anything like that, please let us know. We're at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us on isfitshappy at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for tuning in. All right, so now we get to touch on some of the things you guys brought to us. We're going to start with an Instagram message we got from Amir. This is touching on the last series or last trilogy that we worked on. Um, We just want to tie up a couple things. Yeah, like we said before in previous episodes, we're going to try to tie up some straggler questions in about the previous trilogy. And Amir had some confirmations slash thoughts slash same thoughts as we had about some things here. And one of those was about Hap's origins. Amir says that he was Raider born, but I don't specifically remember that coming up in any of the books, but I know that you thought he was as well, Emma. So wondering if you think it's an actual confirmation or is that like just based on time like you thought i think it's an actual confirmation i think that it must be talked about in the next series yeah amir does mention that he really likes all the conversations between starling and fitz about hap and how fitz so desperately wants a kid and fitz calling him boy just like Chade did with him that sort of thing so i'm wondering if it's in one of those but i really don't know I mean, like we we discussed the possibility that it was that he is Raider born, and I wasn't sure because it would be like right on the edge of the end of the war. But I'm I'm curious if there is confirmation later. Yeah, a, a little unclear, but I I mean as to whether or not that was confirmation based off text. But I think because I already thought this, <laughs> there is text out there to support it. Yeah. And then the second thing that Amir brings up is our conversation about Lant and Shine, who are Chade's kids. We were having a conversation about how old they were in 
the last trilogy and Amir makes a mention that they were both born after the events of Tawny man, which I thought so as well, because there was just too much time passing in between Lant is, uh, with Laurel as the mother and shine is young enough that Fitz believed that she might be dutiful's daughter, but she is the older of the two. So that makes definitely after Tawny man trilogy. Right. Yeah, so that's a really good point and helps clear up a little bit the timeline. I think it's just hard because it seems like Shade is kind of a player. Well, like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's like a little weird that he only had two children and it was well into his He also later knows life. his herbs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he just... Got too old and forgot, I guess, later. <laughs> Anyways, yes. So thank you, Amir, for those um, those confirmations for us. Yeah. Especially about Shade's kids there, because I, I figured that they were in between the two, but I, I wasn't confident. So Yeah, thank you, Amir. From there, we're going to go to an email that we got from Keith. Um, this is kind of in the same vein of uh, giving us some corrections slash uh, confirmations, but uh, this is about the current series that we're on. Um, so Keith wanted to let us know that Kenneth has been in contact with his mother as an adult. He keeps her on his personal treasure island, which I forgot about completely. And just before you continue with the personal treasure island, it's Key Island Sorry. is the name of it. And it's not a personal treasure island. Uh, originally, I had forgotten this too. And I looked up, when I read the email, I looked up Kenneth's biography and everything about it. He and his, his parents had lived on Key Island for a while. And then Urgot raided them, that island. And that's when his mother's tongue got cut, cut out, his father died, and he got taken by the pirate. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's what's in that particular bio. I, I want that to be confirmed before I like say it for fact, but that's how he knows how to get there. That's how he knew the island was there. That's why like there's a bunch of buildings there, and it's not just one house. Right. It's like the ruins of a place. So, and that's why his mother's tongue is cut out. Right. Um, but it is a really good point that um, he is still currently in contact with his mother, yeah. which could be why he has some strong thoughts of the fact that his eyes reminding him of his mother is his weak eyes. Yes. Yeah. Like the cowardice or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting thing. And we'll have to dive more into his story as we go. It's so funny there are 16 books, and so there are little details that just kind of slip out oh, of both of our minds completely as we go. Yeah. And so it's really fun to get you guys writing in to be like, oh, no, don't forget about this part. And it's like, oh, my gosh, how did I forget about this? But <laughs> there are 16 books. So, <laughs> um, so that was a really important thing because we were talking about I wonder mm -hmm. what his relationship was like and what that was. Um, it's still going. <laughs> it's still going on and we will see it soon. And I, I personally think it's a, a lot of him visiting his mother as a reminder of that time. Which right. brings up painful memories and makes him think it's weak because those emotions and whatever. So, right. It is also really interesting because it brings up 
it brings back the idea of something that I talked about earlier in this this episode that um, potentially the Ludlucks in general aren't really great people. If his, if Kenneth and his father and mother kind of went away to live on a different island right. away from the Ludlucks. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it is a really interesting the particular idea. The particular wiki article that I read about Kenneth was that his wife gave birth to him while on the voyage. So that's why they kind of stopped for a while instead of just kind of continuing mm. on the ship. So I don't know, but maybe they were trying to get away. Who knows? Who knows? Um, also, it was pointed out that the other's prophecy does in fact come true. The leg that Kenneth stomps on the glass bobble with is the one that is bitten by a serpent and later has to be removed. Yes. Yes. So uh, this is actually, um, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of circle back to it with the last comment here, but Irene does make a mention of like, you say he was eaten by a serpent, but I thought he died on the Paragon. Yes. We kept saying he gets eaten by a serpent. We were talking about his leg being eaten, yes. <laughs> not, not specific, specifically all of him. But uh, thank you for that, pointing that out as well. So Yes, we had phrased it wrong. Um, that he is not fully eaten, but his leg is taken by the serpent. Yes. And then he does die later. There are serpents around when that happens. Yeah, but those are the ones that he's quote unquote commanding, I think. Right. Very with Vivacia and whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then also uh Keith had some thoughts on other island being a former elderling city. And he said, yes, he believes that it's correct in that the pillar is there. And so obviously elderlings had to have been in touch with this in some way. And even maybe the treasures are coming from somehow the skill stream through this pillar. Um, however, he does not believe that this is actually an elderling city because uh, this used to be a beach where, or still is, I guess, a beach where eggs were hatched or laid yeah. by the dragons. And you do not want humans around that, that area for the serpents to be born. But Keith, this is other Island and they have way too much human influence. So right. wouldn't it make sense if the village was just a little bit too close? You and know, that's why there's so there's many others. too much human interaction with their previous dragons because they were hanging around too much. I don't know. And also, like, what are the other, Treyhog and Kassarek or whatever, they're right on the banks, right by those grounds and, and those soils, and they assist the dragons, right? Like, that's, isn't that the, the history, like, elderlings would assist during that time? Right, and make sure that things stayed away from the eggs. But I guess, like, that longer exposure, prolonged exposure, that sort of thing. It is a good thought, but I, I feel like that explanation or that thought really lends credence to the fact that there was a, a village or a city there um, that Emma thought because of the others. Like, that... Maybe the serpents that hatched there that had that their dragons had too much contact with humans were from that area. Right. Also, it is important to remember that it isn't necessarily the egg being in contact with human, I believe. I think it's the dragon who hatches the egg. It's so it's something that would happen 
because whenever you have the egg, that's part of you, right? So you're like, your life is going into this new serpent as a dragon. I'm trying to think that would, would the new dragons then, if, if that is correct, if it's right. the, the dragons, would the new dragons from dragon keepers all produce others? Cause they are way more human than any other dragons previously. I don't know. It, I, it really depends on how human, like, yeah how close to humans also we don't really know anything about the others in no general. no and we don't understand how it works because there's not a ton it's just i think it's just a one-off thing i don't think it's talked in depth i think this is something that like right. a dragon says in one paragraph of one book so maybe i'm remembering completely wrong but i think it's nothing to do with the egg itself i think it's all the drag it's like the curse of a dragon spending too much time with humans they never get to have a dragon again just like humans spending too much time with dragons potentially have dragon hybrid babies yeah well the let me see this is robin hobbs role of the elderlings wiki says that an abomination is the offspring of dragons that have been influenced by human contact, much in the same way the elderlings are humans influenced by dragon contact. Unlike elderlings, however, dragons despise abominations and kill them when they can, usually promptly after one hatches. The cataclysm resulted in the death of nearly all adult dragons, which allowed hatchling abominations to survive. So Interesting. So you are correct. They are due to human contact with the dragons that hatch them. Yeah. So I guess maybe, yeah, the dragons will have, the new dragons will have abominations. Or closer to. I mean, Tintaglia doesn't like the new dragons because they're just too reliant on the elderlings slash humans. And I don't know, have too much of a contact. But I don't, we don't know how much contact or how the dragon has to act before they produce an other or an abomination. So, right. And these new dragons are kind of malformed anyway because they don't have the same, the same amount of memories as right. Tintangula did. So, I mean, I don't know. It really depends on if it's taken it the like magic universe takes into consideration that these dragons wouldn't survive without the humans or mm -hmm. not. I don't think the overall effect is going to be too great though, because there are more dragons born at the end of the trilogy from the ships and there's still Tintaglia and ice fire. So right. that maybe potential abomination <laughs> uh, <laughs> gene is, could be weaned out. So, right. Yeah, definitely something to think about as we go on, though. But it is a good point that, like, potentially there wasn't anybody there because they would have wanted to stay away from breeding grounds. Yeah. But I also love the idea that potentially the Skill River just has lost stuff in it and is, like, <laughs> shooting out treasures like, every once yeah. in a while. Like, that image alone is like, mm, I give that credence. So. The room of requirement with, like, the lost items, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so thank you, Keith, for those ideas. We really there's one more we didn't touch oh, on actually, sorry. and that's the the others get their clairvoyance from drinking the watered down venom from she who remembers. Right. Like Mercury ingesting the venom allows a limited amount of prescience, which the serpents use to guide them to the spawning beaches. So this is something that 
I kind of hinted at, but you didn't think actually happened. And I still don't remember specifically where they said it, but in my mind, I thought they ingested it. And you thought it was more so like the whites took advantage of it and the others just kept it trapped. Yeah. So I think part of it was that I specifically remember the whites having the blood, I believe, or maybe it's I think like it's the, just the, venom. the toxin yeah. yeah, and giving it to other whites that were inbred to give them super pow- super strength in like skill. Um, but I guess it would make sense that it wouldn't really affect the ability to see the path because they all already have that intrinsically as a genetic factor. So maybe that's why they don't talk about it. I just specifically remember that they were taking whatever serum from the serpent that was like giving them powers. So it is a good reminder that also the others are doing that too. But yeah, like, like he says, it's like Mercor ingested her venom and it allowed a, a limited amount of prescience, which he uses to guide the serpent. So like the others are very similar. Right. And they could probably use that venom in a similar way. To use that knowledge. So it does make sense. Yeah, definitely. It is really interesting, though, to know that it kind of works like that. It still gives me questions about how the whites, like where the whites fall in this magic scale. Like, are they closer to dragons than humans? I don't know. I guess serpents rather than dragons, but still. Things to think about. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Keith, for reaching out and giving us those important reminders. And lastly, like we had mentioned before, or at least like I had mentioned before, we have one more comment from Facebook. Irene posted talking about Kenneth in general. Uh, the last thing about her comment was the, we said he ends up being eaten by a serpent, but didn't he die on the deck of Paragon or something like this? He was on a... Jamalian ship and got stabbed a bunch of times and Vivacia took him and then when he was dying passed him to Paragon or he was stabbed on Vivacia. I don't know. He does end up in Paragon's hands and they become one together. Yes. The serpent thing we already explained gets his leg pretty much needs to be amputated but he gets bitten by a serpent there. But the uh, beginning part of it is um is irene talking about how she specifically remembers that she liked kennett and was kind of confused and kind of like oh i need to read these series this series again because it's been a while if we're calling him the villain (laughs) (laughs) i feel like this is such an interesting series because there are so many characters and you're in so many of their heads and kennett is a really interesting character to read. I think there's a lot that is enjoyable about his chapters in particular and reading through his lens is really entertaining. Mm -hmm. I think that that's like an easy thing to take away. I think I have trouble remembering fully what I thought at every step of the way of these. And like, sometimes I'll be like, I don't even remember this character existed or (laughs) I'll be like, I thought I liked this person more like specifically Althea. I'm like, I don't remember hating Althea, but right now I do not like her. And I think that's like, what's so interesting about rereading is that whenever you finish a series, you like have the memory of 
what was in the whole of the series. And whenever you start back over from beginning and there's no growth yet, it's like really interesting to hear the difference. And then also, especially with a series like Realm of the Elderlings, where there are 16 books and it goes to different places. And this is the only time you really get to be with this set of characters, this cast. It's really easy to forget some of the stuff that they do. And and Kenneth is charismatic. Yeah. And he is likable. I, I specifically remember on my first read through, I loved Kenneth for the first book and a half, you know? Yeah. And then things take a turn for the worse. Well, he, he starts to really warm up to Wintrow, I believe, in like the second book or near the end of that, or I don't remember exactly when. And then right. things take a turn for a worse, and you're like, where did that come from? He's the worst. Like, he's so evil and stuff. And he kind of ends on a benevolent and weird weirdly like he was necessary to leave the world in a better place kind of note i don't know as i said before we started this series he is one of my favorite characters on rereads obviously you you kind of read through the lens of what you already know so you can kind of see him for the villain he is but when you're first reading him he is calculating he is yes manipulative but he comes off as extremely intelligent in how he's playing scenarios. And yes, that's all through his lens. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously he's going to seem intelligent to himself because right. he thinks he is the smartest person in the room, but it just flows so well to like, Oh yeah, this is a charismatic dashing. Like, yeah, he's not great, but he's a pirate, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of like a uh, kind of like Scar from Lion King, you know? <laughs> Scar definitely evil, yeah, but he has a really cool song, you right. know, and he really struts his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then you remember that like he killed his brother yeah. and almost his nephew. <laughs> Just like, I don't know, it's really hard. And obviously we're kind of skirting around what Kenneth does mostly because it's a really heavy topic and we want to have a very serious talk about it when we get there. Yeah. Um, but I don't think every time we talk about Kenneth, we need to have that serious talk because I think anyone who has read the series knows everyone knows. Yeah. We all know what we are skirting around and that it's kind of a hard topic to just like casually touch on lightly. Um, but Taking that out of the equation, not thinking about that, it is it is something to think about of like, oh, yeah, kind of is this like kind of cool character. And then you realize that he like has gone through a lot and also does a lot that isn't OK. And it's like, oh, geez, I can't believe I'm being swept in. I'm being bought by the charisma, the charisma of this character. And I think that's what's really interesting about Hobbes writing of Kenneth. That you can kind of fall into his trap. I, so, okay. Just had a thought. We see Kenneth through his own eyes. We see Kenneth through Wintro's eyes and through Vivacious eyes. All of them have fallen into, and Etta's, I believe. We've All of them adore him. I wonder if we saw through Kyle's eyes, if we saw through somebody else who liked Kyle, like if it would be similar ish where some people would be like, he's kind of an okay person, you know, family right. guy. Yeah. Yeah. He does crappy things, but 
it's, I don't know. It's interesting to me. Yeah. Cause it's just perspective. Yeah, definitely is. It is really important to remember that like perspective can change a lot of things and it is hard to read these and like try to remind ourselves that like, okay, we have to take this as the chapter that we're reading right now and where the character is at now, but also like dig deep and like not really fall for the character and recognize that the way these books are written, every character has a bias and we can't just take what they're saying for face value. hundred percent. So yeah, can definitely see where you're coming from, Irene. So thank you very much for those comments there yes. and everybody else who has messaged in. Yeah, we always really appreciate hearing from you guys. And we're really looking forward to digging into the series with you all. So, yeah, see you soon.